Go ahead and grab uh, your Bible and turn to the book of Revelation. I'm going to read to you verses 4 through 8 of Revelation chapter 1. And then we're going to consider two particular glories that we find in what essentially is a a greeting uh, in this letter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, beginning of verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, the epistolary character, that is the the letter quality of the book of Revelation, becomes clear in these verses. Um, He introduced the book of Revelation as just that, as a revelation of Jesus Christ. The word apocalypse there uh, being what means an unveiling, an uncovering. And so he's introduced the book to us in that way, but now he begins to address the original audience for this uh, book in the form of a letter. Now, we don't usually think of Revelation as a letter. Of course, we're aware that it contains letters, that is, these particular messages to these particular churches. But the very structure of the book itself and the way that it's framed uh, is introduced to us as a letter. And so that bears... Uh, uh, noting that John is writing this document to be delivered and read to and among the churches of Jesus. And as a letter, Revelation is both historical in that it has a unique historical setting. It's written by a unique person in a particular time and place to a particular group or groups of people in a particular historical setting, right? So it's historical and it's timeless. It contains seven individual letters. Chapters two and three consist of these individual sort of messages from the Lord Jesus to particular local churches. He names the, the seven churches in Asia and in verse 11, he actually lists uh, what those church, where those churches are these seven cities in Asia, um, in, in what would be sort of modern-day Turkey, the west part of, uh, of current-day Turkey is where Asia Minor and these uh, cities were located. But verses 4 through 6, this sort of uh, this letter introduction, this salutation, um, show us that the prophetic apocalyptic book is composed and delivered as a letter. And because... There were, we know, other churches in Asia Minor that aren't listed among the seven that are sort of selected for these particular messages. We get the sense that 
The number seven here, the choice of seven churches to receive this message, has symbolic significance. It's not that these are the only churches that existed, not even the only churches that existed in, uh, in Asia or in Asia Minor, but there's a reason, a spiritual significance to the fact that he's chosen the number seven. So yes, John wrote to seven actual local churches in the late first century, but John also writes to every local church in every age. That's the significance, I think, of the fact that he singles out seven churches in the form of this book, apocalyptic literature. Numbers bear symbolic significance, and seven is consistently seen to represent fullness, completion, wholeness. So when he says to the seven churches, he is both addressing actual seven actual congregations, and he is signaling that these messages are intended for the whole church, every church in every age, the universal people of God. There will be more on that in the weeks where we cover those seven messages specifically. John also writes to every local church in every age. And in this greeting, verses 4 through 8, we see two particular glories that I think he wants our minds to begin to to see and to, to process. We see the glory of the triune God. And in particular, we see the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of the triune God, the way this begins, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, and then he gives a, a, a blessing, sometimes called a grace wish. And New Testament letters typically begin this way, with some kind of a a. a, a a statement of blessing upon the readers, grace to you and peace. Often it says something like, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or something like that. In this one, it says grace to you and peace from, and then we get a, an explicitly Trinitarian formula. And in fact, you might be surprised, I was actually surprised to, to come to, to realize this, This is the only Trinitarian greeting in any New Testament letter. The other New Testament letters, none of them mention Father and Son and Spirit the way that Revelation does. You can see clearly in this greeting each person of the triune God. Look first, grace to you and peace from, and then he's going to give a list of from whom grace and peace is coming. The first is this, him who is and who was and who is to come. Him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reference to God's eternal nature and his self-existence. It ties in nicely with the final words of this passage, verse 8, where this phrase, who is and was and is to come, is repeated, and this time on the mouth of God. He says in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That is the the first and the last. Alpha being the first letter of the Greek alphabet and Omega being the last letter of the alphabet. I'm the source and I'm the finisher, if you will. Says the Lord God. This is God the Father in view. Who was, excuse me, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Right. So these are designations clearly for God the Father. And so when John says grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, he is naming for us 
the Father. God, the Father. Now, it's interesting, this phrase, who is and who was and who is to come, speaks first to his current life and being and existence. He is. And he was, which speaks to his eternal past. He has always been, right? He has always existed in himself. And then the phrase, who is to come, you could read that and think that that just means he will continue to exist. But really, it means he is coming. From him who is and who was and who is coming is really the the phrase there. And it's a little bit unusual uh, for the father to be depicted as the one who is coming or returning. It seems that his coming is by virtue of his son's return. So that in Christ, in a sense, God the Father is coming to us. And of course, in Christ's return, the consummation of all things uh, will, uh, will be accomplished and God will then dwell with his people again. And so there is that sense in which the Father is coming by virtue of the Son's visible return to the earth. So it's a bit unusual, but nevertheless, this is a clear designation of God the Father. Grace to you and peace from the Father, him who is, was, and who is coming. And then the second one, the second person from whom this grace and peace comes in the middle of verse 4 is from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And so once again, right away, we're confronted with the symbolic significance of the number seven. Seven meaning completion, seven meaning fullness. And so he's not literally speaking of there being seven individual spirits of God. He is using the, the symbology of the, of the seven spirits to represent the fullness of the person and power of God, the spirit. So the seven spirits who are before his throne indeed are the one Holy Spirit of the triune Godhead. And that is made clearer by the term's appearance in this Trinitarian formula. Grace and to you and peace from him who was, is and was and is coming from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that one in just a moment, right? So it's plain that this is a three-part formula and the grace and peace are flowing to the readers, those who are receiving this blessing from each of these three persons of the triune God. And indeed, the Holy Spirit is referred to this way as the seven spirits uh, several other times throughout the book of Revelation. So we'll, we'll, we'll run into that uh, other times. We need to just bear in mind and remember, we're talking here about the Holy Spirit. And then the third person of the Trinity is named specifically and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. And we will look more closely at those designations about Christ in just a moment. But I want us to just notice here the uniqueness of the Trinitarian greeting that we get here. And the fact that it's the final letter, the final book, indeed, of the New Testament, the last book that we would say and believe that God uh, and God's Spirit actually inspired uh, his apostles to write. And so in this final letter, we get this full Trinitarian form of greeting. It's, it's a, a subtle gift. 
that the book of Revelation gives us. This clear expression of Trinitarian theology, the unique Christian understanding of God as one eternal being in three distinct persons is here codified in the New Testament's final document. Now, of course, the terminology of Trinity and substance and persons and the ways that we have come to speak about the the Trinity as a doctrine wouldn't be developed until uh, the third century uh, by an African theologian named Tertullian. But the opening blessing of Revelation surely provides uh, some of the essential building blocks of this important Christian teaching. And so John wants us to see that the content of this book and the blessings of grace and peace that he's praying to be conveyed upon his readers and hearers, they come from the triune God, Father, Spirit, and Son together. But make no mistake, the centerpiece of this greeting And indeed, as he is the hero of this entire book, is Jesus Christ. So the second particular glory we see in this book's introduction is the glory of Jesus Christ. We'll spend the rest of our time enumerating and expanding a bit on these, the things that John tells us about Jesus Christ. So after this greeting, this grace wish, if you will, grace to you and peace from Father, Spirit, Son, essentially. He then gives a a, a doxology, right? A statement of of praise. And it's offered to Jesus himself. And he says this, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So he's simply praising Jesus Christ and, and offering, not as though Uh, He has the authority to give this to him, but he's merely stating this reality that the dominion, that the rule over the universe belongs to him forever. It's a statement of praise to Jesus. And when you combine the three things that were said about Jesus in verse five, the first part of verse five, when he said the grace and peace would come from Jesus Christ, he gives three things. And then the, the things that he mentions as specific Uh, causes of praise and gratitude to Jesus, uh, here is what is revealed about Jesus at the very outset of this remarkable letter and the final book of the Bible. And there are, perhaps not surprisingly, seven of these designations. Number one, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Back at verse five in the, the grace wish portion of this text. He said, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The word for witness there is the Greek marturos, which might sound familiar to you because it is the source of our English word martyr. Marturos becomes the English word martyr, which means witness. As Christ called his apostles to be his witnesses around the world in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you remember, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses, my martyros in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all through the ends of the earth, right? So witness would become the essential mark of faithfulness to Christ amid suffering and persecution in the years to come. Indeed, for Christians, bearing witness to the truth of Jesus would become synonymous with with what we now call 
martyrdom. That is to be killed because of your faith. Because many were forced to be faithful unto death in their allegiance to Christ. At the time of Revelation's writing, it doesn't yet carry that nuance, right? To say that, that you'd be a witness does not necessarily at this point mean that you would be a martyr. That is, that you would die for your faith. But it would come to mean that in the coming years. It is nevertheless fitting as a designation for Jesus. Because at this point, he's not talking about our witness. He's talking about Jesus' witness. Jesus, the faithful witness. In his earthly life and ministry, he bore witness to his father who sent him up to and including his sacrificial death on the cross. And so the path that Christians are called to walk, to be faithful in their witness, even to the point of death, is one that their Savior walked before them. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So we have in Christ the very model of what faithfulness looks like and what witness will require. Number two, he is the firstborn of the dead. He is the firstborn of the dead. Jen read that same phrase to us from Colossians chapter one about the Lord Jesus Christ, the firstborn of the dead. And this refers to his resurrection. And it has here kind of a double meaning. The first sense is this. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead in the truest sense. Now, we know that there were others even in the ministry of Jesus who were raised from the dead. Jesus, of course, raised Lazarus from the dead. And Paul later would raise from the dead a man who fell out of the window while he was preaching. Um, and, And so there are those who have been raised from the dead. But, of course, they would then be subject to death a second time, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but then he didn't live forever at that point. He still had to die again. And he'll come back at the resurrection at the last day. But Christ, when he was raised from the dead, death has no, no dominion over him anymore. Right? He will no longer be subject to death. He is alive and is living and will always live. And so Christ is the first to be raised from the dead and no longer under the dominion of death. And his people will eventually follow in his footsteps as they themselves will be raised at his return. Thus, Christ is firstborn from the dead, and he will be joined by many brothers and sisters in the resurrection at the last day. And so he is the firstborn from the dead, is to say, in one sense, that he was raised from the dead, indeed was the first to be truly raised, to experience that full resurrection, and then we will follow him as brothers and sisters in that resurrection to come. And the second sense that the word firstborn is used is that of authority. In ancient Hebrew culture, firstborn status indicated rule and privilege and authority. And this connotation shows us that when Christ is said to be the firstborn, he is said to be the one that has the rights and the privilege to rule and to reign. Which then provides a good segue to the very next designation for Christ in this greeting. And that's the one that he says next. He is the ruler of kings on earth. He's the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. In a day when this was written, when Christians were not favored in their society 
And indeed, as formal persecution begins to ramp up under the emperor Domitian in the late first century, this designation would be of special importance to Christians. To think of Jesus as the ruler of kings on earth. Because it might seem to them as though the governing powers of the day had the final word. Right? They had all the authority. And Christians might easily be tempted, therefore, to fear the cruelty of the empire. But John would have them lift their eyes above the social and political realities of the world and glimpse the risen and reigning king of the universe, Jesus Christ, who himself exercises governing power over the kings of the earth. It's like he's saying here, to his readers who may be beleaguered and and afraid of the government. Hey, you think these guys have all this power over you? You think the emperor has the final say about what happens in your life? Look at Jesus. He reigns over these kings. So no matter what comes, even if your witness for him is unto death, nevertheless, you will not be ultimately harmed. And in fact, in the resurrection, you will be with him and like him forever. Perhaps it's a relevant message to Christians in our own day as we look around the sort of state of the the culture and the governing authorities and the things that are celebrated and the things that are condemned and the liberties that we sense are being sort of uh, getting narrower and narrower. Maybe it's good for us to remember. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings on earth and that includes presidents and Supreme Court justices and governors, and senators, and everybody else. Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on earth. Number four, and this takes us down to the, uh, the, the doxology. So those first three came from the, the, the grace wish, grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of kings on earth. And now we turn into the statement of doxology, this praise to Jesus for these specific things. And so here's the fourth thing. That is designated. He loves us. So simple, so profound. To him who loves us. What a precious truth. What a beautiful thing to remember. He's the ruler of kings on earth. He's the glorious sovereign over all things. And he loves you. And he loves me. Galatians 2.20, Paul says... That he'd been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And he said, the life I now live by, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is so powerful to remember that while we are considering a reigning and glorious and authoritative king over all, we are considering one who loves us deeply, truly, unwaveringly. Perhaps the most profound reality in all the world. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Number five. He freed us from our sins by his blood. Of course, that's closely tied to his love, isn't it? Jesus didn't just say, I love you. Jesus demonstrated his love. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.11. And so his love is shown as we consider Christ upon the cross. He freed us from our sins by his blood. 
Another early indicator of the centrality of the cross in the book of Revelation. Just as the Gospels spotlight the suffering and death of Jesus, and just as the New Testament letters expand upon the significance and the meaning of Christ's death, so in the book of Revelation, the cross of Christ holds special importance. The worship in heaven is still centered on Christ's sacrificial death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we're reminded of perhaps the most powerful way that he displayed his glory. We see in this passage the glory of Jesus Christ, and maybe the glory of Jesus Christ is seen most fully in that he gave up his life to purchase our sin-enslaved souls back from the dead, that we might be freed from our sins by his blood. And as Jesus said in John 8, who, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. This is freedom to recognize Christ shedding his blood for our sins to purchase us for himself. He freed us from our sins by his blood. Number six, he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He made us a kingdom, priests to God. Our salvation is for a purpose. Our salvation comes with a mission. He freed us from our sins by his blood in order to make us into a kingdom and a kingdom of priests. He's commissioned us. And I want you to consider a little bit of whole Bible theology here as we think about what this commissioning means. Our commission is the same one that God gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the same one that he later gave to the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, namely to represent the rule of God to the world, acting as his ambassadors to the nations. So the commission of the people of God, whether it was Adam and Eve in the garden or it was the nation of Israel under the covenants or it's the church today and throughout history, the mission is essentially this, to live under his rule as his citizens and to share in his rule as his vice regents, his co-heirs with Christ were said to be in Romans chapter 8. And we know how that went for the first two groups that received this commission. Where Adam and Eve failed and where Israel failed in rebellion and unbelief, Christ succeeded. Tom Schreiner says it this way. The promise of salvation given to Adam and Eve and to Israel has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. God's spirit anointed him to proclaim good news to liberate those who are captive, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. The exile will end, and Israel will be restored and rebuilt. God's people will be his priests, conveying his blessing to the world. According to John, this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus' redemption, by which he has freed his people, both Jews and Gentiles, from sin, so they can fulfill the mandate given originally to Adam and Eve. The church of Jesus Christ is where God now rules. 
And so the commission to be a kingdom and priests to God is now the mantle of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not one that we carry out by our own willpower or our own moral strength. It's one we carry out because Jesus Christ accomplished it for us and invited us to share in the spoils of his victory. And so as Christ is the ruler over the world, we are invited to join him, to live under his rule in the church, under his word, and to share in his rule as we represent the rule and reign of Christ in this world and in the next. So he's freed us so that he could commission us. And we've become a kingdom and priests to God the Father. The seventh and final designation we see about Christ is what takes up the entirety of verse 7. He is returning to judge the world. He is returning to judge the world. I'll spend a little bit of time unpacking what what this entails. This first phrase in verse 7. So he finished his doxology, right? He said, you know, that he loved us and freed us and made us a kingdom to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the doxology has ended. And now he adds this statement about what's to come. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Let's stop there. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. John draws here from the vision of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 specifically. In the vision of Daniel, he sees one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And Daniel sees the son of man going to the father called the ancient of days in that passage. He's the son, one like a son of man comes on the clouds to the ancient of days to receive a kingdom that is without end, a dominion that is forever. And so Daniel looks into this vision and sees the Son of Man going to the Father and receiving a kingdom. So the first thing to see is that John, as the rest of the New Testament does, in fact, Jesus himself in the Gospels, uh, ascribes this messianic title, Son of Man, to Jesus. That was Jesus' favorite self title. When he spoke of himself, he often said the son of man. And in fact, he often quoted uh, this passage from Daniel. You will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He said that on a number of occasions and speaking, of course, of himself. And so John recognizes Jesus as the one to whom the father will give the kingdom. Right. If we're looking at the Daniel vision, the son of man goes to the ancient of days to receive the kingdom. That tells us that Jesus Christ is the one who will be given by God the Father an eternal reign, an eternal kingdom. But here, in the way that John sort of takes and reuses, reapplies the vision of Daniel, as the Son of Man comes on the clouds, it's not to the Father that he goes, but to the earth. Right? The Son of Man comes on, comes on the clouds and... Every eye will see him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So the coming at this point is not the Son of Man to the Father. It's the Son of Man to the earth. There is a visible, global 
return, appearing of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, in view here. And his coming will have a very specific effect on the people of the world. If you look at the very next phrase, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Here, he quotes a prophecy from Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12, 10, where God says of the house of David, namely the people of Israel, that they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. So John picks up this prophecy of Zechariah and applies it to the the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds, right? This visible, global, earthly return of Jesus. He says, they will look on him whom they pierced, which is the language of Zechariah, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And again, that is also the language of Zechariah, that the people would mourn when they saw him. Now, those who pierced him is clearly a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus, right? And maybe even more specifically, to the piercing of his side by a Roman spear after he had died. So we might be inclined to think those who pierced him would look upon him means maybe that the Romans would see him, those who were actually there and guilty of his his crucifixion, responsible for it. We might think more broadly, okay, well, maybe it means the people of Israel, right? The Jews were responsible for, uh, for his death. So maybe they're the ones who pierced him. But given the universal setting of Christ's return, every eye seeing him, and all tribes of the earth wailing on account of him, I don't think John means to convey that only the Romans pierced him. Or that only Israel pierced him, but that all sinners pierced him. In other words, you and I are just as guilty for the crucifixion of the Son of God as the Roman soldiers who drove the spikes through his hands and feet. We are those who pierced him. All sinners of all ages were responsible for the death of the Son of God because it was our sin that made his sacrifice necessary. And when sinners look upon the one they pierced, as he returns to the earth in power and glory, we're told they will wail. Why will they wail? Because Christ is coming this time to judge the wicked who have refused to repent. He is coming to judge. And no one will hide. His justice will not miss any. They will look on him whom they have pierced, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And then this final phrase, so interesting, so reassuring. Despite this coming of certain judgment for all the sinners who pierced him, even so, amen, says John. Even so, amen. In spite of the coming judgment of Christ, Christians regard his coming as glorious good news. Why? 
Because, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 tells us, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, you need not fear the day of judgment. His return to the earth, though it spells calamity for the wicked, will be for you a cause of exceeding joy and heartfelt worship. Even so, we say, Amen. If you're not sure about that, if you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, who died on the cross to free you from your sins by His blood, we were just told, Friends, settle that business with God today. Admit your sin. Invite the forgiveness of Jesus Christ into your life and turn to him in faith today. And the confidence of salvation on this day of judgment will be yours. Though he comes visibly over the whole world with power and authority to judge, those sinners who are guilty of piercing him, who are nevertheless hiding in his grace and trusting in his forgiveness, will find themselves not the recipients of judgment, but family members welcomed home to his table. To quote Tom Schreiner one more time as I conclude, The salvation of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked are both a matter of joy in Revelation. The latter, not because of vindictiveness, not like we're celebrating, I'm so glad that that people are getting punished, but as a matter of justice. The coming of Jesus means the coming of the kingdom, the removal of everything defiling and evil upon the earth, and the inauguration of a new creation, perfect and beautiful. The natural response, the only healthy response to such a new creation is yes and amen. Let's pray.